Butts and Guts, a Cleveland Clinic podcast exploring your digestive and surgical health from end to end. So hi again, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Butts and Guts. I'm your host, Scott Steele, the chair of colorectal surgery here at the Cleveland Clinic in beautiful Cleveland, Ohio. Um, as always, we're very pleased to have uh, a wide variety of guests and uh, none more so than ever with Dr. Brian Gaston, who is the medical and surgical director of the Melanoma and High-Risk Skin Cancer Program. Brian, welcome to Butts and Guts. Thank you very much. I appreciate this opportunity. So we always like to start off with each of our guests uh, and give us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you train? And how long have you been at the clinic? And how did it come to the point that you're here at the Cleveland Clinic? Sure. Thank you. So I'm actually a Midwest kid. I'm from Ann Arbor, Michigan. Not surprisingly, I stayed in Ann Arbor, ultimately for undergrad med school. Uh, I moved to Pittsburgh, where I did a, actually a head and neck otolaryngology training and a NIH training grant, studying how tumors evade the immune system. Uh, from there, I went to Wash U, did a head and neck microsurgery and cancer fellowship, and then I went back to Pittsburgh to do a full plastic surgery residency. I maintained an interest in tumor immunology and uh, became interested not just in head and neck cancer, but skin cancer. I was able to continue all of that work when I joined the groups of Johns Hopkins and University of Maryland at, in Baltimore for around five and a half to almost six years, and 10 years ago moved to the Cleveland Clinic with a major charge to build the melanoma and high-risk skin cancer program, which we've been doing for the last 10 years. I also still do a lot of head and neck surgery, head and neck microsurgery, and was uh, honored to be able to lead the last two face transplants here at the Cleveland Clinic. My other interests, at least professionally, include... Uh, obviously, a uh, basic science lab studying tumor immunology, where I work a lot with uh, industry for translational outcomes. And I, over the last, I'd say, five years, have really moved into the clinical trials realm and uh, and, and actually doing sort of non-traditional clinical trials for a surgeon, uh, doing a lot of uh, therapeutics directed to patients who are unresectable, mainly with skin cancer or head and neck cancer. That's fascinating stuff, and for sure we're going to have you back on where we're going to focus in on the face transplants. But today we're going to talk about something that a lot of our listeners may either know about, think they know about, or know somebody who has had it if they haven't had it in themselves, and that's melanoma. So let's just start with a high-level overview. We've heard the term. sounds kind of scary. What is melanoma? Uh, it's amazing if you really uh, know anything about rare cancers, pretty much any cell in our body can convert to cancer. Uh, and Interestingly, the most common cancer in human is skin cancers, but mainly basal and squamous cell carcinomas, which are much more superficial in our skin because we are bombarded since we are children with UV radiation from the sun. In fact, UV radiation goes through our, our clothing, and it's even worse in the sky. In fact, uh, airplane pilots and stewardesses have two times the rate of skin cancer, specifically melanoma. But deeper within our skin is the cells that cause pigmentation, melanocytes. And so if you're African-American, for example, they're more superficial and they protect you against skin cancer. Uh, but as they go deeper and we become lighter, they become less protective and they themselves can be the origin of cancer. Really from Adam, the first human, till around uh, 2010, it, if you had metastatic melanoma, it was a death sentence. There was uh, interleukin-2, which had a very high death level from just the therapeutics, and so it was relegated to a very small number of patients. And then all of a sudden, those of us who had been involved in tumor immunology 
uh, started getting a breakthrough. And around 2010, 2011, the first New England Journal of Medicine of many got published looking at a drug which targets basically a break on the immune system, releasing that break. Of course, it can cause autoimmunity, which is its downside. But at the same time, it turns out makes cancers like melanoma specifically very visible to the immune system. And from there on, it was success after success after success. And the 2018 co-Nobel Prize were for those who discovered the two molecules that we now commonly target to treat melanoma. So overall, it used to be a very, very scary cancer because our parents, for example, if they had stage four, it was they were done for. But today, even stage four cancers were at least at a five-year 50% cure rate. In the local regional disease patients that have had advanced complex surgery, but with just regional metastases, they're resectable. We can give these drugs adjuvantly and get probably at least an 80% cure right there without even talking about other therapies that can be given if those fail. And then the other side of it is a lot of melanoma is being caught earlier and earlier and earlier. So for example, whereas the numbers in, let's say the late seventies were about 40, 35, 40,000 cases in the United States with about 25% death rate, Today, there's about 100,000 melanomas a year, and the death rate's around 7%. And I would love to tell you just purely because we're curing stage four melanomas, but really it's mainly because we're picking them up much earlier where surgery can simply cure the patients. Uh, And so the term melanoma, I think 10, 15 years from now, will still be a bad term. It's cancer. There's nothing you can say about that, but it's becoming less and less amongst the more deadly ones. And thus, it'll be a little less scary of a diagnosis. But I can tell you as a practitioner, there's a big lag. And it's good to be scared and have you know respect for the disease you're dealing with. But sometimes the fear outweighs the reality. And I think, again, that has to do with the historical nature of melanoma. There's a lot to unpack there. Wow. Uh, incredible. What an incredible journey it just took us on just in that brief overview. So let's let's take a way step back and, and just start out first. So a lot of the listeners we have to this particular podcast are patients, family members. And uh, what are the symptoms that a patient may have? I mean, a lot of us have moles and you may look at a mole and think, is that melanoma? It, it looks dark. Um, maybe that's what he was talking about. So you know, what are the symptoms that people can develop uh, that they may alert or how do they do that? And then along with that, where do we look? Do we look anywhere? How do we look? How do we do a full body exam to make sure we don't have a melanoma? Walk us through those two things. So first of all, there is the classic ABCDE of melanomas, which is uh, A is asymmetry, B is the border of the lesion, which usually we think of like moles. C is the color, is it heterogeneous, meaning is it all one color or there's some brown and black in it. Uh, D is diameter, six millimeters or larger. And E is either evolution or elevation, meaning is it growing and changing? For me, those that are growing and changing lesions of the skin are the ones that concern us the most. Now, I told you earlier, there's much more common skin cancers. And those really are much easier to sort of know that those are not melanoma. So a lot of the things on the skin, it's pretty clear what they are and what they aren't. In fact, only about 30% of melanomas actually arise in a pre-existing mole. So a lot of people just see something growing that may or may not be dark. Usually it is dark, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's not dark because it starts bleeding and it, lo- it faces all of its typical features. But for the most part, most people are just not symptomatic. In fact, the most common location of melanoma is on the trunk. Half the trunk is your back. 
uh, most of us have never seen the molds on our back. So a lot of times you're coming in for something else and your family practitioner or your dermatologist says, hey, what's that? And that's not uncommon also. So it's, it's incidentally found. Uh, the good news is usually the incidental ones are usually the early ones. Uh, usually the ones that start bothering you are the worst, worst ones. The vast majority of patients that will go to a surgeon will have had a biopsy that says it's melanoma of a variable depth, but be completely asymptomatic. And the vast, vast majority of those, you will not palpate any lymphadenopathy. And in fact, a lot of uh, studies have been done that if you would scan those patients, like with CT scans, you'll rarely find anything. Uh, even if there's already disease in the lymph nodes, it's so microscopic, you can't feel it, you can't image it. So from a symptomatology standpoint, the main thing that people can do, unless you have a personal or family history of skin cancers or melanoma, is to do the best you can do. To do a full body scan on your own is tough, unless you're good at it, but most of our patients who get good at it do have whole body mirrors, have significant others, family members that will help them. But this is butts and guts, and I will tell you, I tell my patients is head to toe and everywhere the sun doesn't shine because melanoma can also be in parts of the skin that people don't realize are skin. And it can also be even mucosal. Once you start dealing with melanoma, you start to worry about even rectal, vaginal, tongue, uh, sinonasal melanoma. Those are pretty rare. Don't get me wrong. But once you start building a, a, a personal history, especially if you've had more than one, you start worrying about those things. And a good dermatologist or someone who does a really good skin exam will not forget about those areas. So now we'd like to play a game on here called truth or myth. So number one, truth or myth, melanoma can only be caused by prolonged sun exposure. Myth. And how do we know that? Because we see melanoma in the bottom of people's feet. We see them, as I mentioned, in mucosal areas. We see them in the eye even. Uh, it is possible that there is some UV radiation that goes through tissues and can just hit the right cell that happen to have some pre-existing issues and convert it. But as far as we can tell, sun exposure is absolutely related to it, but is not always required to cause a melanoma. But we do assume that the most common melanomas, the ones in the face and the trunk and the arms and the legs, are probably related to sun. And so a lot of parents like take their kids to their beaches and let them enjoy. Those are the times when you really could possibly giving your child a future problem many decades later. Second truth or myth, it's best to avoid tanning beds as these can cause melanoma to form. I would say truth. I say would say because the overwhelming majority of melanoma experts would say tanning booths are associated with melanoma and bad and should be banned. There are bans all over the United States and different states and around the world. The, the data is strong, but it's, not, it's hard to make pure conclusions. Uh, but I would say from just being part of the overall academic world of melanoma, truth. And final truth or myth, only Caucasians or light-colored skinned people can get melanoma. That's definitely false. Um, and although it is true that the more fair skin, blue eye, freckled, red hair, those types of patients are at higher risk. And interestingly, a lot of us, I have freckles, although I'm not a redhead, uh, freckles many times can come out in the sun and do add a certain level of protection. They're not melanocytes. They are just pigmented spots in your skin. But many redheads actually have a mutation in them, and that's why they themselves actually are worse off. But African-Americans for sure can get melanoma. It's much rarer, 
but it's much more common for them to get it in what's called acromelanoma types, which are usually on the palms and um, the bottom of your feet or in your nail bed. That's the most common location in African-Americans. However, overall, still more Caucasians get it, and thus they have more of it uh, in those areas even. But it's, it's basically a small percentage of Caucasians times a larger number of Caucasians is, larger, is a larger total than a higher percentage of African-Americans times a small number of them that get it. We do see some in Asians. It's, it's, it's not that common. Uh, Middle East, shockingly, it's very rare. Obviously, those with darker skin are relatively protected, so the rates are lower. But you can definitely get melanoma uh, if, regardless of your skin type. So you talked about this a little bit in the overview. Let's jump into the treatments for melanoma and let's walk me through. I got to run in the mill. It's pretty early. What do we do with those? A little bit more advanced. What do we do with those? Lymph node positive. What do we do with those? And then metastatic melanoma. What do we do with sure. those? Melanoma, as I tell all my patients, is for the most part cured, as I told you, 7% death rate. The vast majority of those cures are done through surgery, whether it's a wide local excision only to get rid of the microscopic tentacles that form. And we're very good at curing the primary lesion, whether there's METs beyond it or not. So cure rates, if you just look at the primary lesion, are probably above 99%. If you follow standard guidelines, for instance, the National Cancer Comprehensive Network's uh, guidelines are, you know, you follow those, those are the kind of, again, the primary lesion cure rates. As melanoma gets thicker, we start worrying about it metastasizing the local regional lymph nodes. It can skip the nodes. It can, from the tumor to the node, stop and form in transit mats, or it could take a long time to go from the primary to the node. And that's why sometimes the node will be negative when you biopsy it, and then later they get nodal recurrences. That being said, the vast majority of them, if they metastasize, you'll know right away. And with a cell lymph node, biopsy, you can determine that. Cell lymph node biopsies are very simple. They're basically, you inject around the tumor area in the superficial dermis with material. Usually the basis is a radioactive material that will quickly go through lymphatics and conglomerate or concentrate in, in regional lymph nodes. So if it's on your hand, back of your hand, it'll be in your axilla within minutes. And then you could take them to the operating room where we have a fancy Geiger counter we call a gamma probe, and you can tell right away where you should make your incision. We have additional vital dyes that helps us identify them. Now, once we find the node and it's removed and then the node is checked, uh, if there is cancer in there, and again, it, the chances of that varies as how thick the tumor gets. So if it's a really thick tumor, it can be 50%, 60% chance that, that there is microscopic disease. But even in those cases, the majority of them will be microscopic, meaning I can't palpate it, I can't image it. I can only know it's in there because of pathology. Then at that point, we will image the rest of the body. Uh, about 93% of patients with microscopic disease in the lymph nodes will be clean on imaging. So it's still rather rare that at that, that point, they have anything beyond that microscopic disease. So we're, we're catching it rather early. And, and, and in those patients, which will jump from a stage one or two, which is not in the nodes, to a, some form of stage three, which is in the nodes, those patients can then be offered FDA-approved drugs. And the drugs are the same drugs that we offer to stage four or unresectable disease, which mainly are immunotherapies, which are mostly focusing on blocking the blocks in the immune system. So in the, in, I mentioned IL-2 earlier, think of that as like turning the volume up on your immune system and that caused havoc. It turns out, if you think about 
back to the 80s, we used to have equalizers in our radios. So the, the, there's a lot of nuances in the immune system, and we're trying to figure that out. And some of those have been figured out to the point where we don't overwhelm the patient with autoimmunity, but we do cause better anti-tumor immunity. And so they start out in stage four, and it was so effective, they asked, will it work in stage three? And the answer was yes. The addition to that is that 45% of all melanomas of the skin have a mutation, a driver mutation that can be targeted by a pill. And without going into too much detail, it's actually two pills now, uh, that can also give you an excellent response. And what's really great about those is if you're riddled with melanoma, the responses are quick. I mean, they call it the Lazarus effect. People in the ICU on a ventilator are traked, they get the pill and within a week, they're driving themselves home. But the problem is like any targeted mutation, tumors can remutate and then they become resistant. The immunotherapy is great because it's an external therapy to the tumor. It's the immune system that's being revved up, killing the tumor. When you get a complete response, it's durable. I mean, you, these patients are being cured. And so, for example, our best immunotherapy for stage four, which is, or unresectable disease is at five years now, 50%. And these look like they're going to be 100% cured. I mean, the, that 50% is likely cured. Uh, the other 50% are starting to already get other novel therapies, and maybe the actual death rate is actually less than that 50%. So it's a very exciting time. But in earlier disease in stage three, we do not have anything FDA approved. I will say it worked in stage four through an FDA approved clinical trial. Now it's FDA approved. These drugs worked in stage three through FDA approved clinical trials, phase three, randomized control, et cetera. It's now FDA approved. And now there are multiple clinical trials going on for high risk stage 2B and stage 2C uh, melanoma. We have one of those trials here at the Cleveland Clinic. I happen to be a co-PI on this international trial. So these therapies are being brought earlier and earlier in the disease process, but they've not yet made it to standard of care yet. Absolutely exciting times. And so I'm a patient. I just got told, hey, your mole looks like melanoma or you're scared of that. And now I got to come to your office. Can you walk us through what somebody would expect during that visit with you or one of your colleague at Cleveland Clinic's Melanoma and High-Risk Skin Cancer Program? Sure. So I will uh, qualify that, that I always tell my patients I'm a melanoma killer, not a finder. And I, I don't like being responsible for identifying them because I'm not the one who does great head to toe and everywhere the sun doesn't shine examinations. And that includes things like dermoscopy, other things that dermatologists and other practitioners of skin evaluation do. But assuming they came in with some diagnosis, the first thing I do is I tell them this, that uh, melanoma is highly curable today. 93% of people, all comers are going to be cured. And the majority of them are going to be cured with a simple outpatient surgery that I'll be able to provide for you. We at the Cancer Center here are very focused on time to treat. We published the, I think the first article ever using the National Cancer Database, looking at their time to treat data. We did it in the melanoma program at the Cleveland Clinic. And what we showed was, in especially early melanoma, it does matter when you have your tumor resected, and you want to do it in the first 30 days from diagnosis. We try to get people in as fast as humanly possible. The things that slow us down are, number one, a lot of times the pathology is done outside of the Cleveland Clinic, and we have had our experts change the diagnosis. Thicker, thinner, not even melanoma. But usually for us, I tell patients, you're looking at because I usually do clinic Wednesday and Thursday, our major melanoma OR day is Tuesday. So I said, you're going to have surgery six, five days from now, or 
13, 12 days from now. And most people will accept that. The surgery is going to, again, uh, be a combination of either a wide local excision of the primary, which we do a great job of, plus or minus a sentinel lymph node biopsy. And that, that's going to cover the vast majority of patients and certainly the ones you're describing. Now, there are other elements, especially a place like the Cleveland Clinic, where we have a lot of academic things going on. If this is your second melanoma, your, your brother had a melanoma, we have a genetics program, which is run by Dr. Pauline Funchain, who really is my partner. And, and she's, the really co, she's the co-director with me of the melanoma program. Her strong interest is in familial genetics, which has been understudied, uh, and we're making amazing headways in that. She is becoming a world leader in that area. There are other things we do as well. Um, so for l- patients that are stage three, let's say we do the wide excision cell node biopsy, we find out there's disease in the node. We are using circulating tumor DNA to see if we can identify their recurrences before symptomatology or imaging would, would tell us. Uh, we are about to start a DOD-funded trial for patients who, mainly for stage 1B, which is, again, early all the way up to stage uh, 3, with a vaccine. Uh, The vaccine is really cool because it targets proteins within melanoma, but, and this is what I added to it, uh, it's it's a partnership with myself and Craig Slingloff, a surgeon at UVA, who's an internationally known vaccine specialist and a surgeon in melanoma, but it turns out those mutations I told you about that are 45% of melanomas, they're like 90% of all moles. So if we can get rid of moles, we can reduce the burden of surveillance and risk to patients, specifically people that have already had one melanoma. Our goal is to have something for the earliest stages all the way up. For example, of another project, which uh, Melanoma Research Alliance funded us in Stanford, where we're using artificial intelligence to look at moles to see if we can use pictures from your iPhone to say, hey, that mole should be biopsied, that one shouldn't be. That's fantastic stuff. And it's always great to hear what's on the horizon, melanoma and other skin cancer, as well as the clinical trials that are going on. So as we wind up here, we all like to get to know you a little bit better. So we do some quick hitters. So first of all, what's your favorite sport? Football. What's your favorite food? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm really simple. I like a bagel and eggs. I mean, something like that. <laughs> An omelet. It's crazy, but it's true. And your last non-medical book that you've read? Oh, I read a lot of um, uh, science fiction, and I- I'm blanking on the name. Well, it, it, I know the name of the book series. It starts off the Atlantis Gene, and I'm trying to remember the other two books, but it's a, a triplet. It's really good. And then finally, what is something that you like about living here in Cleveland? There's a lot I like about living here in Cleveland. Uh, believe it or not, when the weather is good, which is a good chunk of the time living here, it's really good. Uh, I love the lake. My wife's from the East Coast. My parents are in Michigan. It's, I think, the centrality of it. Uh, and honestly, most of my life is at home or in the Cleveland Clinic. My car ride is you know, 15, 17 minutes each way. So the fact that the Cleveland Clinic is here. I hate that, not to sound like an overly enthusiastic cheerleader, but it's true. That's fantastic. And we're so glad to have you here. So to learn more about melanoma and Cleveland Clinic's melanoma and high-risk skin cancer program, download a free treatment guide at clevelandclinic.org slash melanoma. That's clevelandclinic.org slash melanoma, M-E-L-A-N-O-M-A. And to make an appointment with Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center, please call our Cancer Answer Line at 866-223-8100. That's 866-223-8100. And please always remember that in times like these, 
It's important for you and your family to continue to receive appropriate medical care. And rest assured, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we're taking all the necessary precautions to sterilize our facilities and protect our patients. Brian, thanks again for joining us here on Butts and Guts. Thank you very much. That wraps things up here at Cleveland Clinic. Until next time, thanks for listening to Butts and Guts.